Thank you. You'll come out to the you'll come out. I'll do the rest of the homework. <laughs> uh, as uh, Theresa May might say, it's great to be back in Swansea. <laughs> uh, now, one of the questions I get asked most often is, um, why don't I despair? How do I get out of bed in the morning knowing that my job probably consists of rolling in the excrement of humanity? I'm not just talking about a recent encounter with Piers Morgan. Um, and the fact is that sometimes I do, you know, especially when I think too hard about what's happening to the living world. I mean, I have nightmares, almost every night now, about species disappearing. You know, sometimes it all becomes a bit overwhelming. But what keeps me going is this recognition that political failure is at heart a failure of the imagination. If you are staring at the wall and you can't see any cracks in it, it's because you're not looking at it right. You have to step back, look at it from a different angle, in a different light, and those cracks are always there. You will find them, but you just have to find them by using your imagination in a different way to how you've been using it before. And this sense has been reinforced for me over the last couple of years by four observations. And I'm not claiming they're necessarily original, I know at least one of them certainly is not, but they were new to me. And they've strongly strengthened my view that there's always a way out. And the first of these is that it's not political leaders or political parties that change the world so much as big political narratives. If you look at the history of the past 70 years, you see that basically politics and economics worldwide have been more or less dominated by two competing narratives. The first one is the Keynesian social democratic narrative, which held sway particularly during what the French called the Trente Glorieuses, 1945 to 1975. Uh, and during that time, this idea of um, taxing the rich um, uh, quite heavily. In fact, uh, taxes rose to 98% at one point in, in the UK, 94% in the US. And redistributing that money through investing in robust public services and strong social safety nets, thereby uh, reigniting economic activity throughout society. Uh, that Keynesian social democratic idea became the common sense which just swept across the political spectrum. It wasn't just Labour and the Democrats who were Keynesians. Richard Nixon is alleged to have said at one point, we are all Keynesians now. It became the common sense accepted right the way across by the Republicans, by the Conservatives. If you did not subscribe to that common sense, you have some explaining to do. And then... Keynesianism ran into trouble in the late 1970s for both internal and external reasons. And what happened then was that the neoliberals turned up. People who subscribed to the school of Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman, Ludwig von Mises and others, um, with this, what I see as a toxic ideology, but um, a very powerfully expressed one, which says uh, that society should be seen as a market and that human relations should be conceived as market relations, they should be transactional. And that we discover merit through these transactions. We discover who the natural winners are and who the natural losers are, and anything which interferes in that process of the discovery of a natural hierarchy is interfering with human freedom. So any taxation or regulation or other constraints upon wealthy and powerful people is um, an unnatural interference by government. And government should be rolled back, taxation should be rolled back, regulation, above all trade unions should be rolled back because, it, because they're all interfering in what they saw as a natural order. And that basically there should be a deregulated economy in which those with agency should be able to express that agency to the full. And they turned up and said, look, your economic and political program has run into trouble. We've got a whole new story to tell. Here it is, this, this neoliberal story. And within a couple of decades, that became the new common sense. It swept the political board. 
It didn't matter whether you were conservative or Labour, whether you were Republican or Democrat, you all became neoliberal. And we were governed by neoliberals. Uh, and these two great stories were first one and then the other. Over the past 70 years or so, they've almost divided it in half, is what had run the world. It didn't matter what your political heritage was, what the name of your party was, what, what, what you personally claimed to stand for. Actually, what dominated was this overriding story, and you just became the channel for that story as a political party. And it shouldn't be surprising, because we are fundamentally creatures of narrative. When we try to interpret this phenomenally complex world that we encounter, we don't say to ourselves, hmm, I'm seeing something new to me. What do the facts say about this? What does the data say about this? I'll weigh the competing explanations of this, and I'll look at what the data says on either side and draw a conclusion. We can't function that way. The world is just too complex. We cannot make decisions. We would be just, uh, we would sit there paralyzed with indecision. We couldn't do anything at all. So instead we use shortcuts, heuristics. And in this case, that, that shortcut is what we call narrative. What we look for when we try to make sense of the world is not sense in the way that a mathematician or a scientist sees sense, which is, um, uh, the examination of data leading to a conclusion, what we look for is narrative sense, narrative fidelity. Does what we are hearing fit with the story we might expect to hear? Does it progress as we expect a story to progress? Is there a beginning, a middle, and an end? Is there a hero who's going to triumph in the end? It's that sort of thing that we are listening out for because we have an innate predisposition to listen for stories, because they are what makes sense of the world to us. The second observation is perhaps more interesting, and this is that though Keynesian social democracy and neoliberalism are diametrically opposed to each other, they use the same narrative structure to explain themselves. And this narrative structure is what I call the restoration story. And it goes like this. The world has been thrown into disorder by powerful and nefarious forces acting against the good of humanity. But the hero, who might be one person, or a group of people, or even an institution, confronts those powerful and nefarious forces and against the odds overthrows them and restores order the land. This is a very old narrative structure. It has been around for centuries and centuries. It has been a highly successful narrative structure in politics and in religion as well. And it's a structure which both those different stories use. So Keynesian social democracy says the land was thrown into disorder by the powerful and nefarious forces of the economic elite who grabbed the wealth of society and political power for themselves, shutting everybody else out through this laissez-faire ideology which said, you know, if we've got money, we're entitled to keep hold of it and no one else gets a look in, uh, and the accumulation of patrimonial capital, uh, which eventually beggared huge sections of the population, helping to create the Great Depression, the massive financial collapse at the end of the 1920s. But the hero of the story, that is the enabling state, supported by the middle and working classes, will confront those powerful and nefarious forces, and against all the odds, overthrow them, and restore order to the land, through the redistribution of wealth, through the creation of a robust public and civic domain, and through the um, enhancement of the spending power of the ordinary people of the land, who can then uh, make their way, uh, uh, create employment, uh, be given employment, which generates income, which then generates more employment. The neoliberal story 
is exactly the opposite of this. It was exactly the same narrative arc, which says, disorder afflicts the land caused by the overweening power of the collectivizing state, which, though its intentions might appear benign, as in the British welfare state or the, the US New Deal, will inevitably lead us down the road to serfdom because its collectivizing tendencies inexorably push us towards the totalitarianism of Stalin or of Hitler. Uh, and that there is a, a spectrum of collectivism and you always move down it along the same route. And, and this crushes opportunity, it crushes liberty, it crushes individualism and creates just one kind of person where we all think and behave in the same way. But the hero of the story, the freedom-seeking entrepreneur, will take on this powerful and nefarious force of the collectivizing state and through uh, creating a free market will roll it back, triumph over it and restore order to the land in, in, in the form of a market economy releasing freedom and opportunity which had previously been suppressed. Two completely different stories with the same narrative structure. And it is a narrative structure that has worked again and again and again. Which leads me to the third observation, which is that this narrative structure is absolutely crucial to political change. That if we try to institute radical political change without a new restoration story of our own, we are constantly trapped in a cycle of reaction and opposition rather than pushing forward with a proactive, propositional story of our own to which our opponents have to respond. The essential element in a new politics is, is to be the driving force of that politics rather than responding to those driving forces from the other side. Which leads to the fourth observation, which is that the reason we are stuck with neoliberalism despite its manifest and manifold failures, exemplified by the financial crisis of 2008, the direct result of deregulating the banks and failing sufficiently to contain the very rich and powerful people of society through taxation, through robust trade unions and all the rest of it, which are all destroyed by neoliberalism, but also manifested in the environmental crisis and manifested perhaps above all in the crisis of alienation, psychic rupture, where we find ourselves alienated from each other, from the natural world, from our work, from our societies, above all from ourselves, with a great series of escalating mental health disasters as a result of this. The reason we are stuck with this monumental failure of a system and a narrative is that we have not produced a new narrative with which to replace it. You cannot replace a narrative with facts and figures. If someone has a powerful narrative and you say, actually that's wrong because the data shows this, that and the other, it's just going to bounce back and hit you. All you trigger there is reactive denial. Anyone involved in the climate wars will be aware of that. You've got the climate change deniers, often sponsored by Exxon, by the Koch brothers, by others, saying, oh, this whole climate change thing, this is just cooked up by these climate scientists to feather their own nests, and, uh, because we all know how much money climate scientists make. <laughs> so much more lucrative than being in the oil industry. Um, uh, and to tax us and to regulate us and to suppress us. And you say, well, actually, that's not strictly true. Because if you look at this article in Geophysical Research Letters, it shows the following trends. It's just, it, it gets you nowhere at all. You cannot progress by that means, you, you, because you are operating at completely the wrong level. The only thing that can displace a story is a story. You cannot take away someone's story without giving them 
and a new one. And so our task, it seems to be the crucial central political task, is to create a new restoration narrative. A restoration narrative based on fact. There's no point in creating a bullshit narrative, as I see the neoliberal narrative as being, based on a whole series of delusions about human nature and our role in, in the world. It's got to be a real one. And it's got to follow that narrative arc, and it's got to show how we can come out with a better society at the end, which sounds like something of a tall order. Quite a lot. Um, to ask of a new story. And I believe that there is one just waiting to be told. And I can't claim to have the whole thing sewn up. I don't want to have the whole thing sewn up because I believe that the era of the grand bloke sitting down and writing a manifesto and handing it down is over. It should have been over long, long ago. Everything we do is best done together. Everything we want to develop is best developed collaboratively. So what I'm going to do this evening is to start off with a sort of rough narrative structure. We've got lots of gaps, there's lots of stuff which needs filling, that can give us, I hope, a basic shape with which we might begin to work together. And that's part of the point of why in all of these talks now, we end up with a forum, a sort of salon, afterwards, where we can start discussing things and moving things forward and challenging any ideas I put forward and coming up with better ones. But it seems to me that if the fundamental crisis that we face expresses itself in a crisis of alienation, then the crucial missing element we confront is belonging. And we have to find a means of creating a narrative of belonging, a politics of belonging, which allows us to tell a completely different story, almost the opposite story to the one in which we are saturated at the moment. And there's a place, a place which now seems obvious to me, from which to start. And I kind of stumbled across it. I, I, my previous project um, uh, uh, it was, was a rather weird one. It was an album, which I wrote with the wonderful musician Ewan McLennan. And it was a concept album called Breaking the Spell of Loneliness. And, uh, and in order to write it, well, I wanted to find out why it is that we suffer so badly from loneliness. We're suffering from an epidemic of loneliness, which is one aspect, I believe, of the alienation that I'm talking about. But why is it that it afflicts us so bad. I wanted to discover what human nature is, basically. Why, why it is that we, we fall into such a terrible state of, of, of psychic and physical ill health if we're not connected with other people. And so I started doing a lot of reading about human nature um, in, in the scientific literature. And I came across something absolutely stupendous. That in one discipline after another, in neuroscience, in psychology, in anthropology, in evolutionary biology, they all come to the same basic conclusion over the past 20 years or so, a conclusion which absolutely flabbergasted me. And that is, that in the words of an article in uh, the journal Frontiers of Psych in Psychology, human beings are spectacularly unusual by comparison to other animals. Well, we are in several respects. But in this respect, in respect of our altruism. Altruism? Human beings, you've got to be blinking kidding. Spectacularly altruistic, spectacularly <coughs> empathetic, spectacularly collaborative and cooperative. This is what all of these papers were telling me. How could this be true? Look at what we do to each other. Look at what we do to the world. How can we possibly be these creatures which are described in paper after paper after paper. And then I began to think, well, wait a minute, what exactly are we seeing? Well, you turn on the news, you don't see necessarily humanity's best side. I know as a journalist that if it bleeds, it leads. What the news is doing constantly is showing us the terrible things that people do. 
And it reinforces a natural tendency we have to look out for the bad things that people do because we have to be alert to danger. If there's someone doing bad things, they might do bad things to us. We have to make that salient in our minds. And sure, there are people who do some very bad things. Turns out there's a very small minority, 1% or less, who don't share those basic altruistic and empathetic characteristics. Unfortunately, they tend to be in charge. <laughs> and they really do. There's, uh, there was one paper um, which examined um, uh, 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 patients in the Broadmoor Special Hospital who had been diagnosed with psychopathic personality disorders. And then it did surveys of um, chief executives of some of our leading companies. <laughs> and it found that on certain indicators of psychopaths, the chief, chief executive would further down the line than the patients in Broadmoor Special Hospital. And basically, if you have psychopathic tendencies and you're born into a poor family, you end up in prison. If you have psychopathic tendencies, you're born into a rich family, you go to business school. <laughs> Sorry, where, where are we? <laughs> Um, and, 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 and so we give a very mistaken impression of what we're like from looking at the sort of people who, who run the world. And as a second line of evidence, I would like to um, put forward Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> so, we, um, and so that's one issue, the, the sort of being alert to danger is another. But also, our altruistic behaviour is so commonplace that we just don't even notice it. I'm coming in here today. Did you elbow and shove other people out of the way in order to get the best seat? Well, maybe some of you did, especially you in the front row, yes. Or maybe actually, or maybe you in the back row. Um, or did you maybe sort of stand aside and let someone else move in? Did you, if there was someone struggling to get in, did you sort of let the door swing in their face? Or maybe did you hold it open for them? Our daily lives are characterised by constant acts of economically irrational altruism. <laughs> From the point of view of an economist. Um, and this isn't reciprocity. This goes way beyond reciprocity. If you give money to a homeless person, you're not expecting them to give you money back. If you send money to a charity working on the other side of the world, you're not expecting to get any material gain back from that. This is... This is Altruism which goes way over the head of reciprocity and sometimes takes spectacular forms. I know people who have taken refugees into their homes and treat them as family members, these people who are total strangers. It goes beyond that. My um, Dutch mother in law, she, her, her family during the German occupation of Holland took in a six year old uh, Jewish boy and kept him in their house for two years. Failure and everything as well. Um, <laughs> the, the, the house next door was occupied by the local German commandant. The street was thick with soldiers and officials every day and at night as well. H had they been caught, and there was a very high chance they, they would have been caught, the whole lot would have been shipped off to Auschwitz and murdered. It wasn't just them, there were thousands of families doing the same thing in Holland and in many of the other <coughs> occupied nations. This is absolutely spectacular. This is quite an extraordinary thing. And though you see altruism displayed by certain other animal species, it's by no means as widespread and by no means as far-ranging in any other species as it is in human beings. Now, economists, yes, then again, have this uh, notion of humanity as homo economicus, that's, what they, that, that's how they like to characterise us when they're doing their, their modelling. Self-maximising man, and it is always depicted as a man. Um, and it sounds very scientific, doesn't it? You know, this, uh, sort of, they, so when they model how humans behave, it's like we're always trying to give as much for ourselves as we possibly can. We're trying to grab as much wealth and power as we can. There's no scientific basis for this whatsoever. It's just their model. Um, and, but it's become, for some of them, an idea of how humanity ought to be. And another very interesting psychology paper I read says um, Homo economicus is actually a very good model of chimpanzees. <laughs> if a chimpanzee gets um, some, something really nice, some, some novel food, 
They will sit on it until they've eaten it all. And if even their own infant comes up and asks for some of it, they're likely to get threatened and chased away. If a stranger chimpanzee turns up in a troop of chimpanzees and says, oh, hi, guys, come and join me, they're quite likely, literally, to have their arms torn off. Now, we're in a group mostly, I dare say, composed of strangers to each other or friends we have yet to meet. Um, any of you have your arms torn off yet? If you have, can you please ask your neighbour to hold up your hand? <laughs> uh, this is an extraordinary thing. Here we are, sitting peaceably together, not fighting yet. Uh, and that is actually quite phenomenal in the animal kingdom. Yeah, these strangers just, you know, not, you know, sharing a space quite close together without actually any conflict arising. This is what we are, and this is the opposite to what we've been told we are again and again and again. Because neoliberalism in particular, and you know, there are many ideologies which are basically giving us a completely distorted picture of who we are, but neoliberalism makes it a virtue. It says that selfishness and greed are good because they ensure that the most competitive people get to the top and then enrich themselves massively, and that wealth will then trickle down to enrich everybody else. And we all know how spectacularly important. <laughs> so, so they actually tell us that to be hyper-individualistic and hyper-competitive is the ideal state of human being. Well, we see where it's led to so many levels, and what we end up with is this utterly atomized society where instead of the individualism that they promised us, we end up with a sort of cowering terror of each other and a complete collapse in the sense of our own security and our own personhood, such that it actually stifles our individualism and stifles our creativity, and instead we're just scrambling to keep up with everybody else and doing what everybody else is doing, because we're driven by competition and by this, this illusion of individualism, just constantly to, to, to keep up with this mad race into which we're all being pushed. So you end up with the atomization, but without the individual expression. So, to fit it into the narrative, <coughs> the land has been thrown into disorder. In this case, our sort of psychic land, our, our, our internal landscape, our remarkable good nature, has been thwarted by the perception, strongly reinforced by our political environment, that we are what we're fundamentally not, which is selfish and greedy. And the survey after survey, experiment after experiment, shows that we all have a bit of selfishness and greed in us, but that it's way down the list by comparison to empathy, altruism, uh, community feeling, benevolence, kindness, to all way up of far stronger values for us. But also that the political environment you create shifts those values. And so while we remain largely dominated by them, they become weaker in a society which says you should be fighting like stray dogs over a dustbin, and unless you fight and compete and grab what you can, you're going to fall through the cracks and die in, the, die in a ditch. If, if that's your political environment, your values shift to reflect it. You shift along the spectrum of what social psychologists call intrinsic versus extrinsic values. We all have a bit of both of them in us. The intrinsic values are about empathy, benevolence, uh, connection, but also about self-acceptance. Whereas extrinsic values are about self-enhancement. You're not happy with who you are, so you have to have more wealth, more power, more status, more image. Uh, Donald Trump is the, is the exemplar of extrinsic values. He is almost 100% extrinsic. In fact, I've not seen any evidence of any intrinsic values that he's ever expressed in, in his entire adult life. Um, and he's a sort of ghastly warning of what can happen. But the great majority of people really are not like that. You know, we're dominated by the intrinsic values, but if you create a really harsh political environment, you become rather more extrinsic. You create a much kinder one where you say, basically, everyone's going to be cared for, everyone's going to have a place, everyone's going to feel a sense of security, 
and your values become much more intrinsic. And this has been demonstrated by a lot of very interesting experimental work, starting with the sort of schools of Charles Schwartz and Tim Kasser and others. Um, and brought to um, uh, uh, a lot of this has been summarised by a group based in Wales called Common Cause. Uh, so, here we have this situation of these wonderful people, which is what we are, who are allowed to be the wonderful people that we are, that this constantly gets suppressed and thwarted and bypassed by the system under which we live. So that's the disorder. <coughs> well, the heroes bit, the heroes, we are the heroes. We are the heroes. Our innate good nature is the heroic element that we want to reveal. And the good thing about the story I'm trying to tell here is that it's not about changing human nature, it's about revealing <coughs> human nature, about allowing us to be that incredible species that we are. So we're not fighting against the tide of, of humanity. We, we're, we're working with the way that the human mind operates. And if we are to create a politics of belonging, if we are to overthrow the politics of alienation, if we are to overthrow the powerful and nefarious forces of neoliberalism and patrimonial capital which have seized the world, then I believe we have to come at it from two different places. And the first of those is from the bottom up. And what this means fundamentally is building community. And in this case, while I believe that there's value in a whole range of different kinds of community. What I'm talking about is community rooted in place. Not exclusive communities of just one kind of person in one sort of place, you know, people with, you know, if you don't have four generations in the church, you are not from around here. Quite the opposite. A generous and inclusive community which says, whoever you are, wherever you come from, however recently you've arrived, however soon you might leave, you are a part of this. You belong here, it belongs to you, and in belonging here, you belong to yourself. You have a sense of place, a sense of being rooted, which I think is an absolutely fundamental human need, and one which we have neglected and neglected at our peril. Because it is through active and thriving <coughs> communities, communities of mutual aid, communities of self-help within that mutual aid, that we discover our true humanity, that we release those empathetic and altruistic and unselfish aspects of our nature. And there are a couple of ways of coming at this. And I'm going to discuss them by way of example because there's an awful lot which I could spend hours and hours talking about all the different aspects of this. But I'm just going to hone in on a couple. And it seems to me that the crucial element of rebuilding inclusive and generous communities, one of the two crucial elements, is to develop what um, practitioners call a participatory culture. In other words, as many um, outlets for togetherness, for fellowship, for companionship as we possibly can. And there's been some very interesting work done on this. You know, as in every subject, there's loads of people studying it. And a lot of this has been brought together in a massive study conducted by the London Borough of Lambeth, which has looked around the world at part, different forms of participatory culture to see which ones work and which ones don't. And its conclusion is that what you have to do is to have a mixture of quite sort of high commitment, high threshold activities, you know, quite sort of detailed, skillful things which you know, particular people will commit themselves to for a long period, and very low threshold, low commitment activities. You know, one of the most fundamental things of all is eating together. How many people know the origin of the word companion? Companies with bread. The, the act of eating together is absolutely fundamental to fellowship. This is it's fundamental to humanity. It's, it's a very inhuman thing to do, really, to sit in front of the telly eating by itself. You know, okay, we all have to do it from time to time, but as much as possible, we should be eating together. And not just with the people we already know. We should create spaces to eat with people we don't yet know. In eating with them, 
you create a bond, a very often a very powerful bond. And the act of eating provides a social situation which allows you to start meeting. The eating and the meeting, they go together. But not the meat eating and the meeting because actually we don't need the meat in the eating world. Anyway, um, so, what am I talking about? Food, food, But other low threshold activities like shared childcare, for instance, um, shared bulk buying, uh, cutting costs, shared making and mending, and stuff, but things that people can easily dip in and out of uh, uh, without having to make a big commitment, without being scared of what might be asked of them. And what this Lambert study shows is that when you get that mix right, you can get this extraordinarily proliferating takeoff of participatory culture. And the classic example they point to is what happened in Rotterdam, which is a city quite similar to Cardiff in some ways. You know, it's a port city, uh, there's a, you know, a sort of deindustrialized port city with a lot of unemployment, a lot of poverty, a uh, very wide range of different communities, often quite alienated from each other. You know, there's quite a few issues in Rotterdam. But what happened in 2011 is that some activists set up what they call the Leisel, the 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 the, the, the reading room. I probably pronounced it wrong, but it was an old um, Turkish bath, a disused Turkish bath, uh, where uh, they thought, well, we'll have a little festival in here. We'll have some plays. We'll have some films. We'll have some hangout spaces. People can um, read a newspaper, work on a computer. Uh, have a drink, have a chat, and it was really successful. It just they got it right, and so they thought, all right, well, we'll keep this running. So they kept it running indefinitely. It's still running today. It's only meant to be a one-week festival, and that spawned a cafe, and it spawned a bar, and it spawned a nursery area, and then it spawned an outreach to older people who couldn't get out of their homes. And what happened? We have them. It's basically turned to thirteen hundred projects, and it has transformed the nature of Rotterdam, its politics, its social function, its civic life. It has been absolutely <coughs> transformative. And to the extent that the council now does almost nothing without referring first to, uh, to, to the community groups that have transformed the city. It basically pulls them in and says, how are we going to do this? Because you seem to have a better handle on it than we do. And it's been an amazing reversal of the structure of power. And sure, you know, it's quite a sort of sympathetic city in which to do this. And you need to start these things off in places where you're going to have a bit of political space, though you can start to create that political space almost anywhere. Um, but it just shows the extraordinary power of that proliferating networking. You get it right by coming in at those different levels, the low commitment, the high commitment, pull different projects together, and then they then start budding off each other. It's sort of a great spawning process which, which begins to take place. And in doing so, you begin to develop what the study calls thick networks, thick networks of participation. The projects begin to overlap, and suddenly it becomes the norm to participate. If you're not engaged in a community project, you start asking you why, asking yourself why. Everyone else is doing this, why aren't I doing this? Whereas at the moment, it seems a bit of a weird thing to go and join a community project in, in a lot of places. Um, and, and so you, you create a kind of new common sense within your, 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 your own community. And I feel this isn't you know, just a nice thing to do. This is in our current climate absolutely essential because basically we can't survive without a sense of belonging to a group of people. We, we are so socially minded that we fall apart without that. This is why solitary confinement is such an effective form of torture, because our minds are not confined to our own beings. Our minds are a social mind which have to mesh with other people. Your mind can't develop unless you're engaging with other people. Um, even if that's a sort of second-hand thing through literature and stuff, but ideally through talking, through the most powerful medium of all, which is this one. Not necessarily when I use it, but um, it is, you know, remains, word of mouth remains by far the most powerful of all forms of communication. Uh, and if we do not form generous and inclusive communities, 
The result of that is not no community, it is different kinds of community. And kinds of community which might not be positive at all. Tribal, exclusive communities, which in their political form can often take the form of fascism. This is what Hannah Arendt warned us of, that, that fascism arises from the dust and power of atomized societies. Is that when your, your social fabric is basically shattered, people are desperately looking for something to belong to. And you get some idiot stands up and says, I'll give you something to belong to, you can be the dominant group. You can belong to this dominant group which will crush all those inferior groups. And then you say, oh yeah, that's a sense of belonging, that's what I've been looking for. And so you, 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 you find that meaning and purpose through that fascistic, uh, politically tribal uh, community instead. The answer, you know, the alternative to a generous and inclusive community is not no community. It could be something very dangerous indeed, especially at this moment of great crisis in which both threat and opportunity are embedded. This is an urgent task. We urgently have to find a positive narrative before other people come in with a narrative of their own. And we're seeing those other people emerging all over the world at the moment. But the second element, which is just as important for bringing communities together, is something which involves the transfer of genuine power and resources to those communities. The community of belonging, there's, there's something good about these words, um, you know, quite aside from any meaning we might attach to them, which is that they're just about the only word, words in politics which appeal across the political spectrum. <coughs> it's a very rare politician who say, now I'm against community, or I'm against belonging. It, fascinatingly, you, you probably a lot of you know uh, Edwin Burke's famous quote about the little platoons, about how politics should be based in the local community and based on that sense of belonging, it should grow from there. Thomas Paine said almost exactly the same thing. I've got the corresponding quotes in the book from, from the two of them. It's an identical thought. There could not be two people who were more politically opposed to them than Burke and Paine, who were opposed to each other than, than, than those two. But this, this is something to which you can appeal across the spectrum. But when people like David Cameron talked about community, or his big society, or when Mrs. Thatcher talked about hair in the community. What they were talking about was something rather different to what I'm talking about. They were basically saying, we'll dump the issues which we as a state are not prepared to deal with on you, the community, and you can sort it out. So we're, we're going to close the library, but how many volunteers can reopen it? We're not going to give you any money, any new powers, any new resources, but um, you know, if you value the library, fine, go ahead. You, you, you reopen the library. And of course, you know, they knew perfectly well that it wasn't going to work. But they didn't care because all they had was an excuse for closing the library, an excuse for austerity. If community is going to be one of the driving forces of a political transformation, then it has to be a community with real powers and real resources at its disposal. And what this means is the commons. How many people here would feel confident in defining the commons? That's one, good. Two, two and a half. Three, four, five. Yeah, that's pretty good, actually. That's higher than the average. Thank you. This is extraordinary. This is one of the pillars of the economy, the four pillars of the economy, and yet nobody even knows what it is. I don't know, with one or two notable exceptions, and thank you. It's, it's just outside the whole scope of political and economic discussion. <coughs> when, when we talk politics or economics, we position ourselves along one axis. State at one end, market at the other. And if you're on the left, you say you want more state and less market. And if you're on the right, you say you want more market and less state. That's basically how we discuss things. And we just go up and down that single dimension, just, just along that single axis. But actually, there are four sectors to the economy, four principal sectors. There is the state and there is the market. And I believe both are important. I'm not trying to abolish either of them. I believe the state is absolutely crucial. However strong communities are, they cannot build an NHS. 
They cannot transfer money from rich communities to poor communities. There's all sorts of things that only the state can do. But it is absurd that we talk only about those two. Because there's also these two other crucial ones. The household. Some people describe it as the core economy. Because without the household, nothing else can function. It's absolutely critical is the household. And because it's outside the scope of most political and economic discussion, the economic role of women, in particular, is devalued and downgraded. Because uh, it is still mostly women who are doing the work in the household, but that work is, is, is not recognised by, by, by most economists. There's a um, wonderful book by um, Catherine Marcel called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? <laughs> and uh, in it, she um, describes how while the great economist was having his great thoughts and writing the wealth of nations, it was his mum who was doing all the work around him, cooking his meals and, and, and making his bed and washing his clothes and all that. And he wouldn't really be able to function without it. He would simply have starved to death because he was completely incapable of looking after himself. And yet, the invisible hands of his mother <laughs> remained invisible. There was not a single word about the role of people such as his mother in the economy. And his own economy, his own livelihood, depended on someone else invisibly doing all the work, which enabled him to then sit there and, 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 and write his great book. Um, and, and we neglect this you know, enormous cost, principally to women. But then there's the commons as well, the fourth pillar of the economy. And the fact that I have to explain what the commons is just shows how phenomenally neglected it is. The commons consists of three main elements. First, a resource. Secondly, a community that manages and controls that resource in such a way that any product from that source is shared equally among the members of that community. And third, the set of rules and negotiations that that community, uh, uh, that community generates to ensure, first, that the resource is managed in perpetuity, because the true commons, the resource is inalienable, it can't be sold, it can't be given away, and second, that its products are shared on an equitable basis. So a commons is not the state, it's not the market, it's not the household, it's not capitalism, and it's not communism. It's a completely different sphere of the economy. And once upon a time, pretty well everything was the commons. Everything that wasn't the household was the commons. And our fundamental resources tended to be managed and controlled in common. I don't say owned, because the idea of owning our fundamental resources, such as land, such as water, was as alien to people as owning the air is or owning sunlight is to us today. It was a completely, I mean, it wasn't even something considered right or wrong, it just wasn't even a concept. It wasn't even considered to be something you would even think about, because it was just so outrageous and alien and strange if someone had raised this concept. But starting in England in the 16th century primarily, this ethos of ownership of land began to take off. And communities were uh, thrown off the land through enclosure. The land was grabbed, uh, and, and everyone, and almost everything, was cleared off it. Uh, and I, I, you know, the reason I'm interested in all this, and perhaps you know, the sort of underlying reason why I came to this particular story was that much of my work abroad in West Papua, in Brazil, in East Africa, was with indigenous people, and I saw what happened to them when they lost the land. Complete psychic collapse. Total alienation and anomie, leading very often to severe mental health disorders, to alcoholism, to drug abuse, and the rest of it. Came back to Britain and read the poems of John Clare. Wonderful, our great, possibly the greatest English poet in some ways. Uh, and his beautiful nature poems um, in his early adulthood and his poems describing his community and the richness, the colour, the brilliance of, of that life described in, in, in glittering detail by this amazing peasant poet. And then 
the landlords turned up, the enclosures, and they threw everyone off the land. And he's got these devastating poems, such as The Moors and The Fallen Man, which describe that process. And what happened to him? He lost his mind. He fell apart. He became an alcoholic, and he ended up in a lunatic asylum where he eventually died. And it struck me. What I saw happening in other parts of the world was what happened here. What has not stopped happening here. We are still living in that state of enclosure. We are a post-enclosure society, and we wonder <coughs> why we have so many social problems. We lost our community, we lost our land, we lost our place, we lost our sense of belonging, we lost our ceremonial culture, we lost everything. And then they exported it, first to Ireland, then to Scotland, then to all the colonies, and then other colonial nations started copying the model. And it's still happening today in the last places where the commons still exist and robust and thriving communities still exist, they're doing it to them, as I've seen firsthand. So it seems to me absolutely crucial that to make sense of community and to make it a real and viable proposition, we have to restore the commons. And let's stick with the example of land, because it's a classic example of something which no one invented, no one made, and yet some people make phenomenal amounts of money off it. How do we turn the land, particularly in cities, which is where it really counts for us now, how do we turn that land into a commons? So here's one potential route. As we know, at the moment, we have a small number of people who basically own very large tracts of the most valuable urban land, or indeed of all the urban land. And they are the people we call the landlords. How many people here pay rent? You spend, what is it, 20% of your working time, 30? In some cases, in some cities, 50%? earning the money to pay that rent, yeah? You're working so that they don't have to work. They don't have to do anything to claim that rent. The great majority of the value of the house or the flat that you are renting comes from the underlying land value, not from the bricks and mortar, not from anything, from anything the landlord has done, not from the paint on the walls, not from the fixtures and fittings, but from the speculative value of the land, the value that has been created, not by them, but by society. Because the reason land in a desirable part of the city is so much more expensive than land, say, on the top of a mountain, is that society has created the infrastructure and the surrounding economic activity which has uh, caused that land to rise in value. We've, we've put in the roads and the sewers and the electricity and the surrounding businesses and the schools and the hospitals and all the rest of it. But the landlord just sits there like a fish in the current with its mouth open, sucking it all in. Doesn't have to do anything. Just becomes richer and richer and richer. And this is at the heart of patrimonial capital, which Thomas Piketty um, describes its evolution so well in, in capital in the 21st century. Um, and, and it's the reason why, despite the fact that we're supposed to be such a rich society, so many people are so poor, because we are having to give that huge amount of money to people who are so much richer than us, which they then kindly send to Panama or the Cayman Islands, taking it not only out of your pocket, not only out of the community, but out of the whole country, and impoverishing us as, as a result. So we have this problem of rent. And the best way of dealing with the problem of rent is land value taxation. It's taxing that speculative value of the land that underlies the bricks and the mortar. It's an idea which goes back a long way. Adam Smith, actually, was very much in favour of it. Um, so there's a whole series of unusual characters, including Winston Churchill and, and um, some sort of people who were quite conservative, uh, even in, in British politics, um, could see the sense in it. But there was always resistance. In fact, they very nearly brought it in in David Lloyd George's government and the House of Lords for reasons I can't quite put my finger on, <laughs> decided it should not pass. And then it all got thrown out of kids about the First World War. Uh, and it's, it seems to me that it's crucial now, in this age of patrimonial capital, which is basically what patrimonial capital means, is that the sort of inherited or acquired value of assets 
uh, gains wealth for you far quicker than any work you do. And that wealth then generates more wealth, which generates more wealth, and just runs away. There's no organic break to that. There's no natural limit to the amount of wealth and power that certain people acquire. And so only government intervention can actually change that. And what happened after the Second World War, at a very auspicious moment, you know, the Atlee government and similar governments around the world, they broke the power of patrimonial capital. And they did so through massive income taxes and a few wealth taxes, but primarily through very high levels of income tax. They not just distributed money, but they broke that political power of the patrimonial class, which is absolutely essential. And we need to do that again. But in this case, we need to do it with land taxes for several reasons. One, you can't move your land to Panama. <laughs> you can't escape. Yeah. You can't escape. Yeah, which, is, which in this day and age, in the sort of globalised digital age, is a really important aspect. Uh, but two, it is where the store of wealth is for, for so many of the 1% or the 0.1 percenters. But three, it leads to a nice example, I suppose you could call it, of hypothecation. Because you can say, right, okay, in levying this land tax, you do several things. You break the power of patrimonial capital, you bring the price of land right down because it's no longer a highly lucrative speculative asset, and you generate a big wad of money. What do you do with this money? Well, the government and local government should have some of it to pay for essential public services. But I believe the residue should be distributed equally among communities around the country. And each community, for instance, a, a part of a borough, part of an urban borough, would be uh, invited to set up a community trust which would be the recipient of a share of this money. And this community trust is a kind of commons already because it's taking a wad of money which is the resource which is going to be shared equally. But it's not a complete commons because it's not an inalienable resource. But what you also offer to those communities is a couple of other things. First of all, a community right to buy, like they have in Scotland, a community right to buy land. But then something even more radical than they have in Scotland, the community right to land assembly. In other words, to buy coherent packages of land. If you bought most of the land you would need, say, to build a housing estate, but there's a bit of land in the middle of it which is being misused, underused by someone, and you really need that, you might have compulsory purchase powers to be able to complete the assembly of that piece of land. So say that you as a community have acquired a piece of land, maybe a piece of urban land which has got a casino on it, something that members of the community have decided might not be number one priority to meet the needs of that community. So you say, right, we bought this land at this reduced price, what are we going to do with it? Well, what we need more than anything you might decide in your community is housing, affordable housing. And I don't mean affordable housing, I mean affordable housing. <laughs> and so we say, okay, that's what we're going to do on this site. We're going to clear the site, we're not down the casino, we've got a cleared site. A site which is integral, which has got everything you need to build an estate on. And then you say, right, we're not going to build this, not directly. What we're going to do is, first of all, go to the people who are at the top of the social housing list and offer them an option to, to live on this estate, if they want to, an estate which is not yet built. And then you say, well, we want a mixed development because we shouldn't just have, you know, sort of all social housing. We should mix it with some owner-occupiers, some people who are private, <coughs> going to be private renters. So we invite people to come forward and put down a deposit to be living within the private sector on this piece of land. They would be able to own a house, but not the land underneath it, because that belongs to the community. You've now become a commons land trust, in that you have a piece of commonly owned or commonly controlled land. And you say to these people, you are going to design the estate. We'll provide professional help, you know, advice to you, and we'll provide the budget that the job of designing the estate and indeed the houses that you're going to live on within the estate is going to be yours. And what we see around the world is that when people are allowed to design the estates in which they live, they're so much better than when some volume house builder comes along and helicopters down the design and say, there we are, we've built it, 
you can live in this like it or lump it, and generally you have to lump it because it's generally crap. Um, they're, they're generally so much better when people have designed it themselves. But then, what you've also done is before anyone's moved on, you've created a community. Because the people have to work together to design that estate. So by the time they've moved in, they all know each other, they've all been working together for a year or two on, on these plans and these designs. And so straight away, you've got this sort of, this inbuilt, almost ready-made community, which maybe has come up with all sorts of innovative solutions to the different issues that people face. And they've had to work together because you can't design the estate without each other. But the commons, the community, still owns the land, and it's still receiving rent, albeit at a lower level than was being paid before, from that land. It's still getting land value tax coming in. Uh, residue of the land value tax is still coming to the community. What do you do with that money? Well, you might want to build some public amenities. You know, public wealth rather than just private wealth, public luxury. There's plenty of room for public luxury. There's no room for everyone to have private luxury. It's simply not the physical space. And if everyone in Cardiff wanted their own swimming pool and tennis court and play barn and art gallery, Cardiff would come away with us. It's just, we simply do not have a physical or environmental space for everyone to live in private luxury. Private luxury deprives other people of, of, of wealth. But public luxury opens up the space for everyone to enjoy wealth, and there's plenty of space for everyone to enjoy public luxury. We should, we should aim for private sufficiency in public luxury. That should be the aim of society. Anyway, so you might decide to invest in public amenities, or you might say, we're giving all this income, why don't we pay a local citizen's income to everyone in the community? Now, these are some of the options which suddenly start opening up to you when you have a commons which is generating wealth which is there to be equally shared among the members of that commons. But as I said earlier on, we've got to approach this from the top down as well as from the bottom up. We have to be working within a conducive political environment, otherwise our ethics will keep being crushed. We have to have policies which operate at the national and even the international level, because without that we have problems we can't address just as communities, such as climate breakdown, and the rest of the concatenation of environmental disasters we face at the moment. So we need regime change. Not democratically, of course. <laughs> and one of the really exciting developments, I feel, is, is a new means of achieving this, which began to develop in the first half of 2016. Now, you think, the first half of 2016, what possible good thing happened then? <laughs> um, but something very exciting happened, something which I feel historians might one day look back to and say, wow, that was the moment in which things really began to change. And this was the Bernie Sanders campaign. Bernie Sanders campaign, he didn't even become the Democratic nominee. How can that be seen as some great success you want to build on? Well, when Sanders um, uh, announced his candidature as the Democratic nominee, he had 3% name recognition. He had zero money. I mean, tiny, tiny amounts. So two or three staff members. This is not a great place to start if you want to be president. And so they said to themselves, what have we got? And the only thing, the only resource they had was enthusiasm. There were a lot of people who really wanted Sanders to be president. Even if those people were weak people, poor people, they wanted him to be president. And so they thought, what if we give a few of the jobs that we would normally use staff to, to, to um, uh, deploy, what if we gave those jobs to volunteers? Just little ones to begin with, see how it works. Oh wow, those volunteers are pretty good. They do it as well as staff could do it. You need sort of three or four volunteers for every staff member you might have, but there's loads of volunteers. Let's give them some bigger jobs. Oh, they really like those bigger jobs. They've done them really well. And they gave them more and more and more responsibility. And found that there was basically nothing they couldn't entrust to volunteers except the national press operation. That was the one thing which was considered too sensitive to farm up, but everything else they could do, and then someone had the brainwave, why don't we get the first wave of volunteers to train the next wave of volunteers? And gradually they found they could just step back and back and back from this, 
because what they were doing was creating a political community. A proliferating network of volunteers taking on more and more and more work and, and taking on a volume of work which no amount of staff could ever fulfill. They cracked the model. They worked out how to do it about four weeks before the end of the process. But it was too late to affect the outcome. But this great experiment had basically tested the model and shown that it worked. Because by the end of this process, Sanders had recruited 100,000 volunteers who had organised 100,000 events and spoken directly to 75 million Americans. They reckoned with another four weeks, they would have spoken to every accessible adult in America. And I believe nothing would have stood in their way, first for getting the nomination and then for winning the presidency. It was an extraordinary thing which they unlocked. They discovered this technique, which they called big organising. Well, when the British election was announced in April, I've just read this book called Rules for Revolutionaries by two of Sanders' organisers who explained how it was done. And I thought, ooh, you know, there's something very exciting here. So I made this video for The Guardian saying, you know, and remember, this was at a time when the only debate in, mainstream, in the mainstream media was will the Tory majority be 100 or 120? Everyone was predicting this monumental landslide, this total wipeout for Labour. And I made this video saying that if Labour brought over some of the Sanders organisers and, and, and introduced this big organising technique, I know there's very little time and all the rest of it, but it might just stand a chance. I'm used to a fair bit of flack in my profession, but the levels of mockery and vituperation were off the scale. I don't think there was a single positive comment beneath this video. And I looked at this and thought, oh, God, why did I say that? What a stupid thing to say. What an idiot. You know, it's just all about wishful thinking. Little did I know, they'd already brought over Sanders' organisers. They were quietly discussing this with them, even as I was making this video. And though there was, at that time, only five and a half weeks left, they started developing these proliferating models through the labour grassroots, roots, through momentum, doing basically what the Sanders people were doing, but with new variations of their own and new discoveries. Well, we all saw the results. And again, another couple of weeks, they were a pinch me. They so nearly did. And when you saw the trajectory of support, it was just quite remarkable. It was the biggest surprise in the entire history of British democratic politics, that turnaround. And now we see a government which is supposed to be strong and stable and have a landslide majority just collapsing in front of our eyes as a result of what happened in June. An extraordinary thing has taken place. Now, you know, all this is essential, and you know, where Labour has got to so far is very exciting, but I believe it needs to take a further step, which it seems currently to be very interested in indeed, of <coughs> forging a new political narrative. Because it's my contention that when we put together these new techniques and strategies and tactics of the political community, of big organising, of the proliferating networks of volunteers, with a new political narrative that tells us who we are, where we are, how we got here, and where we are going to go next, which completely reframes and resets the way that we think about politics, think about economics, and above all else, think about ourselves, then, my friends, we become unstoppable.